Women's participation in entrepreneurship has been steadily increasing and significantly contributing to the global economy. According to a global entrepreneurship monitor, GEM report, women-owned businesses represent about 30% of all businesses globally. In the United States alone, women-owned businesses generate over $1.9 trillion in revenue annually and employ more than 9.4 million people, as reported by the National Association of Women Business Owners. Looking forward, women-owned businesses is growing at a rapid pace. According to a report by McKinsey, women entrepreneurship could potentially add $12 trillion to the global GDP by 2025. Additionally, GEM reports that the gender gap in early stage entrepreneurship has been narrowing in many countries, making it relatively more accessible for women to succeed in their business ventures. Although these facts and figures are promising, we have to ask ourselves, is it enough? Women still encounter several barriers and challenges when starting and growing their businesses. And this includes limited access to capital, lack of mentorship and networking opportunities, societal biases, and work-life balance. According to PitchBook, venture capital funding has significantly increased in recent years, with most of the funding being distributed in San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles. Unfortunately, companies founded solely by women acquired only 2.1% of the total capital invested in venture-backed U.S. startups in 2022. Lack of capital can result in not having enough to cover overhead expenses, funding expansion opportunities, or launching a new product to the market. Why is this so critical? Well, women-led businesses often prioritize social impact and innovation. Research indicates that women entrepreneurs are more likely to tackle societal issues and integrate sustainability in their business models. And this week's guest, who's Joan Sullivan Garrett, is an exceptional example of a female entrepreneur who turned her passion into a business and revolutionized an industry. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atlantic Aviation. Atlantic Aviation provides aircraft ground support in over 100 FBOs across North America, including locations in Hawaii and the Caribbean. I am proud to be partnered with a company that puts their people first and highly values diversity and inclusion. Atlantic Aviation's vision and mission is evident through the relentless focus on culture, safety, and service. Experience the Atlantic attitude today. Check out www.atlanticaviation.com to see all 100 plus locations and plan your next visit. Joan Sullivan Garrett is a visionary entrepreneur and the esteemed founder of Medair, a pioneering company at the forefront of medical and travel safety solutions. Joan has made an incredible and lasting mark on global healthcare with her exceptional leadership and unwavering dedication. 
Born with an innate curiosity and a passion for making a difference, Joan embarked on her professional journey with a clear mission to enhance the safety and well-being of individuals traveling far from home. As a 1979 graduate of the Mesa Community College nursing program and her extensive background in healthcare and deep understanding of challenges faced by travelers, Joan recognized the need for specialized medical assistance and support in remote locations. In 1985, Joan established MedAir, a groundbreaking organization that provides comprehensive medical and travel safety services. Under her visionary guidance, MedAir quickly became a trailblazer in the field, setting new standards for medical support, emergency response, and crisis management in the aviation and marine time industry. Joan has been featured on Time, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and BBC, among other notable networks, for her extraordinary work and contributions to the medical field. In our conversation, Joan talks about her childhood and the inspiration that launched MedAir. She also shares her entrepreneurial journey and the lessons she learned in pursuit of turning her passions for saving people into a global business. Garrett also shares how she managed motherhood her well-being, and motivation to keep building her business and impacting the lives of millions of people. Joan Sullivan Garrett, welcome to the Aviate with Shasta podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So Joan, to get to know you better, if you can, take us back to young Joan. Where did you grow up and what was one of your fondest childhood memories? I grew up on a cattle ranch um, for most of my childhood through high school, and um, it was in California, and we were about an hour away from any uh, township, if you will, and uh, so my life was pretty isolated, and uh, I think the most personal and and rewarding part of my childhood was my relationship with animals. Um, of course, being on a cattle ranch, um, it was 24-7. The cows never realized that there was a weekend, so they didn't get to eat. And so my horses, the cows, the dogs, the chickens, all of the different critters um, required a lot of attention, not to the least of which was getting up at 5.30 in the morning and having to milk the cow. Um, milking the cow uh, twice a day. And that was one of my re- many responsibilities before school. And uh, I couldn't come home unless there was a gallon of milk. And sometimes the cow kicked the bucket or um, decided to go to the bathroom at that time. I had to throw it all out. And so um, work was very much a part of my upbringing and developing a work ethic, I think, was um, very much tied to my childhood, um, those responsibilities. And by the way, I was able to um, get out of milking the cow in high school because um, I was told if I got on the honor roll, I wouldn't have to milk anymore. So that I did. And uh, that, that was great motivation. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. I grew up in California in Richmond. And so I'm curious, where in California did you grow up? This was Central California. This was near Paso Robles, San Luis Obispo. Oh, yeah. um, I had one date in high school. 
Um, and and that the reason for only one is because it was an hour and a half drive one way to go to the movies. Oh, wow. um, and um, most of my um, suitors couldn't afford the gas or to to take me out and it, it just wasn't worth it. So wow. um, that was postponed. Oh, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I can imagine. I know that area has grown a lot, um, but I can imagine that could be very difficult when you're courting and, and dating people. Yeah, like I said, it wasn't wasn't a part of my life, really. Yeah. Um, you're also a third generation Irish American and come from a family of nurses with your grandmother and mother being nurses. Did you naturally want to follow their footsteps or were you kind of steered in that direction? I really wasn't steered in that direction. Um, I, I wasn't very close. We weren't a close family. It was in many ways. It was very dysfunctional. Um, but my grandmother, I was born on her 50th birthday. And so I just had a natural attachment to her. And of course, I knew she was a nurse and my mother was a nurse. But um, I, I can't say that that was really a, a genuine interest until high school. And, but I knew I had a calling and that calling drew me to fix every sick animal, every, every injury that happened on the ranch. I was the one to, um, take care of them. I wasn't afraid of it. I just jumped in there and, you know, the sick calf or the, the horse that was colicking or, or the dog that was bit by a snake or, or what have you. I was the one that seem to be, always take care of those sick animals. So there was a calling um, and I, and you know, you have to, sometimes you have to block everything out. And that's one of the things that I did when I would ride my horse, that was my escape. That was where I could, you know, talk about my, my internal dreams and all of the things that I wish for when I grew up. And, and that was on, on horseback and, um, and, and they listened and they didn't talk back. Um, so <laughs> Um, naturally that's one of the things that kept calling me was, um, to serve, to serve mankind, to, to be there, to help fix people. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Cause that calling, which we'll talk about here in a little bit has led to really just revolutionizing the healthcare industry, um, so I'm so excited for this conversation and and just kind of having you take us back and talk about how it all started. So, Joan, you have you serve as the founder and chairman of Medair, a leading global provider of 24 seven medical and security assistance, medical kits, equipments and crew medical training for the aviation and marine time industry. Medair's innovative technology, MedLink, connects clients to emergency room physicians trained to assist in remote healthcare emergencies. Today, Medair is recognized as the gold standard across the globe. Let's go back to the start. The book you authored, One Life Lost, Millions Gained, the story of a flight nurse turned Medair CEO, is a compelling story of your life and how you channeled your passion for helping people in to a business that saves people's lives. Chapter one is titled The Boy, where you share the inspirational story that launched your company, Medair. In the book, you describe, and I quote, a heart-wrenching event that redefined the way you view remote emergency medicine and also your role in the medical community. If you can, Joan, take us back 
and briefly share the event that happened on this summer day in 1984? Well, even today, um, just at a high level, I can um, still relive that scene and my relationship, albeit um, quite short, with um, this little boy. And uh, for your your listeners, um, I, because I'm not sure that the situation that I was in or the profession that I was in is replicated around the world, but because of the state that I live in, we are quite have many remote areas, and um, any emergency can happen anywhere. Uh, throughout the state. And uh, I was, along with a few of my colleagues, were trained at a very high level. Physicians were our instructors, and they taught us um, skill sets that were previously reserved for only physicians. And those were very invasive and um, were intended to uh, intervene in life-threatening situations. We flew on helicopters and fixed wings. So it was all critical care, life-threatening emergencies. There was never, quote, a good call. But the, um, the day that you mentioned, I was on a helicopter and I flew with a paramedic and a pilot. And we were um, launched to a scene of a rollover accident um, in the foothills of uh, the desert mountains. And uh, when we were travel, when we were flying to that destination, um, we were thinking about all the things that that might be involved in a rollover accident where a child was thrown from a vehicle um, during the rollover of that that um, car. And um, when we almost got to the scene, we were canceled, and uh, we pleaded with the on scene control, which were EMTs, to not cancel us because children have the ability to um, compensate uh, for for a very short period of time. But they were sure that this child was fine and he was going to be okay. Um, And so we couldn't override them. And we went back to the hospital where we were based. And as our skids touched the helipad, we were relaunched to the scene. As we finally arrived, 20 minutes, now 40 minutes had passed, and we've all heard about the golden hour. During that um, uh, flight, I knew that we had a serious, serious issue. And when we landed, I was directed my paramedic to look at the other occupants of the vehicle and make sure they were okay. And I was directed to a pickup truck where this little boy was lying all alone. I crawled into the pickup cab and introduced myself and told him that, you know, we were going to go for a helicopter ride. He talked when he spoke to me and he said his name was Ralphie and he uh, had an extremely high pitched voice. And I knew that that was not normal. And then as I was examining him, I could see that he had a lot of like bubble wrap under his skin and it was creeping up his neck and that's called crepitus. And what that told me is that he had a a very serious tear in his airway somewhere. And with that high pitched voice, I told him I needed to put an intravenous line in him and and then we would um, go uh, as quickly as possible. And he said, that's okay, I'm tough. And 
as I communicated with this little boy, um, he said, it doesn't hurt. I'm not afraid. And it was as if he knew he was dying. And then he grabbed, and it's still hard for me today to even remember this um, in the way it was said. He grabbed my flight suit collar and he pulled me within three inches of his face and he said, I love you. And then he went into a full cardiac arrest. We did everything in our power to um, save this little boy and we flew to a trauma center and they did everything they could to try to save his life. And it um, was not successful and he succumbed to his injuries. That call stayed with me for another day or two that was just constantly reliving that. And I knew that as a mother, because my sons were about that age at the same time, and as a mother, I knew I would want to know how, how was my son? You know, what happened? So I went back to the hospital. I got the phone number for the mother and I called her and I told her what any mother would want to know about their child, that he didn't suffer, that he wasn't in pain and that he gave me a message for her to tell her that he loved her. And of course, you know, this is very emotional and, and we both cried and, and, um, and, and, I felt like I was able to give her something to hang on to that she knew that because she went through hell, <laughs> everybody criticizing her for not doing all the things that perhaps she should have done to protect her son. But um, it's when it came time to write my autobiography, I did reach out to her and she gave me the rest of the story. And so that is in my book. But so you say, you know, how did that impact me? Well, it did immeasurably. It, it, it was the one reason that I could never quit. I had to do something. I had to um, turn this tragic incident. And that's not to say the, on the only one. No, uh, I had, you know, all of our patients had one foot in the grave and the other one slipping. So we're, there were, as I said, never any good calls. But even though that was a part of my my work and you focused only on what your skill set was and what you had to do to save that life. In this situation, it was completely different. This, this little boy connected with me in a way that no one else had. And I knew that there was something greater attached to that, that I had to do something and I didn't know what. <laughs> so that was how it all started. Well, thank you for, for taking us through that story. I can imagine, I can only imagine how emotional it is to retell it. And as I was reading it, I was just a ball of tears. Um, I, what, what I really admire about your book is you do such a great job just taking the reader back and, and just painting the scene. Um, and then after you describe your uh, recollection of the events, then you hear from Ralphie's mom and what a sweet boy Ralphie was. And it, it just really, um, was just an incredible story. The storytelling was, was just 
really emotional, really beautiful. Um, and it really paint the picture of how Medair came to be what it is today. Um, Joan, you are a mother of two sons in the book after speaking with Ralphie's mother, which you just shared, um, sadly about the death of her son and his last words, you asked yourself, what if it had been one of my boys in that front seat alone, no one understanding with only one thing on his mind, which is mom, I love you as a three year, uh, as a mother of the three-year-old, you could just only imagine how emotional it was to, to read that, um, you share that suddenly it seemed that you had all the time in the world to ponder this question, which inspired the idea of bringing emergency room level medical expertise to the scene of emergencies, no matter the location. I think that your story is such an excellent example of how professionals who are also mothers can make a real impact in society if they are empowered and given the opportunity. With this, Joan, if you don't mind, can we dive into your entrepreneurial journey? Uh, and starting Medair and just start um, diving into just your experiences so that myself and the audience can learn from you. Mm -hmm. Um, Before I do that, though, I think it's important to say that um, I had a a very close relationship with my sons. Um, They, we went through a pretty traumatic divorce. And um, so I just always felt that I needed to be completely honest with my sons, not only about my feelings, but um, to ensure that they understood there are things that I had to do in my life that if I was fulfilled and I were happy, that they would be as well. Um, So with that as a basis, and understanding that, in my opinion, it is all about quality, not quantity. And my work was, you know, sometimes 14, 16, 18 hours a day. And so I wasn't able to go to their sports games or things like that. But whatever time I did have with them, I made sure that it was quality. And as I embarked upon starting a company that didn't exist anywhere before, and a lot of intrepidation. Um, I, I, I kept them always in my um, current state of being, whatever that might have been. It's like, I don't really know what I'm doing here, but I'm going to give it a <laughs> shot anyway. And um, But at the same time, while I was still flying as a flight nurse, there was legislation that was introduced by our our Arizona Senator, Barry Goldwater, and that was after he saw how pathetic the medical kits or lack of uh, were on board commercial airlines, he proposed an an emergency medical um, act uh, to um, the FAA, a notice of proposed rulemaking to change and increase the type of uh, capabilities on board commercial aircraft would be, and that would be introducing life-saving drugs although they would have to have somebody on board that would know how to use them. And, uh, and I thought, well, gee, um, I know all about this. I could produce these kits. This is my entree into business. And so I set out to create a kit, but not just to meet the standards that he was suggesting. I wanted to do something more. I wanted to protect those people who were, were first responders 
on a commercial airliner. And I was appalled. I was really appalled at what was available to them to treat any, any emergency. And, and more importantly, they, this was when HIV was becoming much more prevalent and other bloodborne diseases. And I thought, well, there's no gloves in this. <laughs> there's nothing to protect their airway or their, you know, from contracting an, an illness if, if they tried to help somebody. So I, I um, offered an upgraded um, medical kit and um, produced that. And um, my boyfriend at the time was an engineer. He's now my husband of 36 years, by the way. Um, but he was the quality control. And my sons and I packed um, 100 kits in my home for the first airline that said, okay, we'll try this. And it, it was like the validation that I, my idea was going to stick. And so um, my boys were very involved even from the very beginning. And, and so we packed those kits, we shipped those kits, and that was to People's Express, which was a, a nouveau type of airline. Unfortunately, uh, well, well, I got paid for that, but unfortunately they went out of business. And then I had a great difficulty in convincing other airlines that this was something that they should have. So I would say that the first attempt at business failed. And, uh, and I thought, okay, um, uh, that one sale is not going to sustain a business. So I gathered some of my flight nurse friends and we wrote a training manual because the training didn't even require CPR at the time for flight attendants. And uh, we developed um, the first only aviation-oriented um, in-flight medical training um, curriculum and tried to sell that. Well, no one was interested. <laughs> there was a lot of, a lot of um, um, walking into doors and walls and rejection and things that a nurse is not used to receiving, I, you know, so... Um, and cold calling, uh, you know, calling, you know, airline medical directors who thought that I was crazy. Um, they, <laughs> you know, well, you're just a nurse and what, what would you know? And so the rejection was uh, front and center everywhere. Um, so uh, how do you deal with rejection? Um, I think that, that um, there's a message in that. Okay, so what am I missing? And and I think you have to accept it. You have to accept the rejection. You have to say, okay, that's not the door that I've got to go through. I have to create another door to go through here to, to get them to understand what I'm seeing and they are not. So I thought, all right, I am going to, I'm going to be the preacher. And so I started doing a lot of research. I started digging, getting all the rules. I went to Washington, D.C. I went through all of their comments, periods, and all of the, the comments from different contributors to the ruling. And I thought, okay, I know enough. I'm smart enough to know that they're behind. They're archaic in their thinking. The industry the aviation, um, the planes, everything's moving forward. But when it comes to taking care of sick passengers, 
they're back in the 1950s. As a matter of fact, that first aid kit was in the 1950s was the last time it was updated. And this is 1985. So I thought this is something I need to do. So I started writing abstracts. I started um, writing papers. I started publishing them in different um, venues with the commercial airline industry and Flight Safety Foundation. uh, And I got up and I started telling them what they needed. And I had to educate an industry, the whole industry, about a need that they didn't know they had. So that was my tactic. That was my strategy. I'm going to become the expert from which everyone will then understand why they need services like mine. I don't have to sell it full, full, full steam ahead. All I can do is educate them so that they now know that they have a need. And that was the strategy that I employed. And was that six were people open to it? Um, because you're, you're here, you are a nurse, you're a woman and you're kind of educating on them. Um, were they open to it or did you get any pushback? Oh, I had lots of pushback. <laughs> As a matter of fact, um, the industry was the commercial airline industry was quite hostile, uh, and and that is that is really minimizing it. Uh, so I mean, you need to understand that there were empires built within an airline, and that empire was controlled by a medical doctor and who managed all of these things. So here comes this nurse. First of all, there's that relationship, you know, nurse, doctor, you know, I'm the boss, you're not, and you do what I say, and you're the handmaiden. Well, that never resonated with me, and that's why I was a flight nurse, because I wasn't good at taking orders. So um, I um, I had to demonstrate, and so I was able to, through all of my speaking and, and the co-development of every aspect of my business, this was ongoing. I was creating what I felt was the perfect solution to in-flight medical emergencies. And I was doing it from an emergency standpoint. I had that knowledge and I knew what they needed. And so I started developing training programs for aviation. You can't call 911 or 111 or 112 or any of those numbers when you're aloft. So I built MedLink. And, and anyone who's seen that movie, you know, build it and they will come. Yeah. <laughs> so I built it on a hypothesis. The hypothesis was if there is a medical emergency aloft, then our emergency physicians would be able to guide them if I could get them to speak other than in Latin terms uh, through that emergency and bring that expertise on board vis-a-vis the communications we had at the time, which I might add, we did not have internet. We did not have satellite communications. We only had HF radio and data link. That was it. So with that, um, I launched MedLink at the same time. And, um, And that's when I got the attention of the business aviation industry was through the speaking opportunities and also through the radio communications. Because at that time, with HF radio, everyone in the world is listening (laughs) to whatever's going on out there. So if there's a medical emergency, um, it's on the airways. And people 
could hear how our doctors were managing medical emergencies. And we did this um, pro bono. We didn't have relationships uh, at the time. We didn't have customers at the time, but the radio companies got the call. We have a medical emergency. What do we do? And they would, because we reached out to them first, they would call us and say, we have XYZ airline and, and they have a medical emergency. Can you help? Absolutely. And we would do that. So that was one way of getting the word out. But there was a lot of naysayers, people who thought that um, uh, this would never work. This is a bad idea. Um, and and I think you, you just have to do some soul searching and say, um, I understand where they're coming from. They don't have that information. But I know what I'm talking about. I believe in myself, and I think I know what the solution is, and I'm going to pursue it, irrespective of that. Now, I may tweak it along the way based on some of their feedback, but that doesn't mean that I I, I changed my idea. So, Joan, I just reflecting back on all that you said, there's so much there. Um, I, I would love to really, because there's a lot of women out there who have these entrepreneurial ideas or business ideas, and the hardest part is just getting off the ground. Um, and then it doesn't stop there. Then you're, you know, aviation is a very male dominated industry and things have been the way it's been for since forever. And so you talk about how you had the, the speaking events, you had the pro bono incredible service that was available. How did you turn all of that into a money generating business? Like what was that transition like? Well, the um, the word sustainability today is 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 throughout everyone's um, vocabulary, and uh, as I mentioned before, uh, there wasn't um, uh, a lot of business in the beginning. So, the first thing I did is I I tried to find money, <laughs> and and there was none to be had. So uh, I didn't. I think you have to be willing to sacrifice. I think that's, that's, if you really want to do this, then you have to find a way to make it happen. The way I did it was I continued to fly part-time as a flight nurse. I had to provide for my children. I had to provide their medical insurance. I provided for their schooling. I provided, I was the, the breadwinner, if you will. And um, so that meant I had to have an income while I was pursuing this idea. And, and then when I couldn't be flying all the time, uh, because, you know, I think the, the, the biggest aha moment for me was, yeah, it's a great idea, but it's global. Planes don't just fly in Arizona. <laughs> they don't just fly in the United States. They are worldwide. So recognizing that now I am going to have to go international, but I have no money. So what am I going to do? How, you know, they're not going to give me free transportation. So while I was continuing to work full time, I, of course, the business is starting to get off the ground. I'm getting traction. People are saying, yeah, I think this is a good idea. You know, how much? And it's like throwing spaghetti against the wall. Did it stick or not? Okay, well, I'll price it this way and see if that works. But I used every new customer's income to hire more people, 
because I needed help. And so with every new customer, I would hire someone new that gave me funds. Then I could I could go out and talk to these medical directors or create new customer bases. And speaking also costs money. So um, I would travel and 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 speak at these facilities. Um, and but I have to say the real turn in my business was finding a market that embraced my idea not I didn't have to work for it because it yeah. just made sense and that was the business aviation side of aviation wow. and they were thinking about the VIPs that they carried on their aircraft and uh, you know the Red Cross CPR program just wasn't cutting it because there were so many varied things that could happen uh, on their international travel that that they weren't prepared for. So they adopted Medair. And so I kind of put commercial airlines on the shelf because it was just too hard um, and uh, began pursuing business aviation. And I did that through speaking opportunities, training. I did the bulk of all the training to begin with just to, to understand, but, but I also got inside those flight departments and I heard about where they were going, what destinations they had. And then I would look at those destinations and say, well, here's the risk factors for those destinations. And this is what they need to know before they go there. And I'm going to train them so that they can handle a situation. But more importantly, I'm going to give them the tools so that they have them when they go into these third world countries, for example, to have that. And then they have a backup system and that's the MedLink service that they can call for advice and we can coordinate medical care anywhere in the world. It was a lofty undertaking, but by hiring more people as I went, I could start building the park. I could really put meat on the bones and make sure that I had the capability because I never wanted to make a promise that I couldn't keep, right. whether it was to my sons or to my customers. And that that was the most important thing to me, my word. And, and so for other women who are starting a business or have an idea, I say, do it. The, where there's a will, there's a way. And sometimes when my back was against the wall, which it was in many, many times, um, I made my best decisions. And at the time, I was also a runner. I was running um, wherever I went. I would run about five miles a day. And that's when I did my biggest thinking. My biggest problem solving uh, was when I was running. And and so we all have different tactics. We all have different Um, outlets, if you will. And I think you have to have that balance to create an environment where business can thrive. Because sometimes you get so deep into it that you don't, you you don't recognize one opportunities or two threats. And so by being um, focused on what you're trying to do, you also have to step back and think about external factors that could either influence and help or external factors that are threats. You know, when you describe the pivot from initially you started with the commercial airlines and you saw that that wasn't as effective. So you pivoted to business aviation and then just taking it a step further to, to share the risk, you know, really painting the picture as to why your service is so critical. That's so smart. Um, 
as I was preparing for this interview, I read that your business eventually took you back to your roots when the government of Ireland purchased a Gulfstream jet with Medair Services. Uh, When I read this, I thought about, you know, when I was flying around the world, I had the chance to go back to my homeland, Afghanistan. And we left, you know, as a refugee, I was a baby. um, But then to come back to my homeland as this woman on this mission, I I kind of related you going back to Ireland with that a little bit. Um, And I'd love to hear what was it like for you to return to Ireland as this incredible businesswoman? Well, having heard um, from my grandmother all the trials and tribulations that her her parents went through in immigrating to the U.S. Um, right after, you know, the the potato famine and and um, you know just all of the challenges that that they had, I, I felt like I knew them. I felt like um, I had some of their DNA, and they were really very strong and tough people and how they survived um, in, in, in those dire situations. When Gulfstream Aerospace um, decided that our services were so important to their customers, they were the first OEM um, that signed on with Medair and said, Every airplane we sell, we're going to sell with MedLink, training program for the crew, and we're going to make their equipment standard on all of our aircraft. Well, that opened opportunities for Medair that I couldn't imagine ever gaining otherwise in, in such a rapid fashion. A part of that was the Irish Air Corps. And this was the flight department for Mary McElhaney, who was the president uh, and also the the president of the EU at the time. So they were traveling all over the world. And so I was asked if I would come in and train their pilots and, and flight engineers and flight attendants. And what an honor that was. And it, I, I, it's so hard to explain because I just felt like when I was in Dublin and when I was out at the Baldano um, Air Force Base that I had a connection to these people. I wanted to be their family. I wanted to be just integrated with them. They were so welcoming and warm. And, um, and the fact that my middle name was Sullivan didn't hurt either. <laughs> but the uh, uh, when I walked into the foyer, I noticed these tapestries, and they were created by a woman um, by the name of Bernadette Madden. And when I walked in there, this one just spoke to me because as an p- entrepreneur, I, I thought, don't tread on my dreams by William Butler Yeats. And I said, and again, remember, I don't have any money. I'm not taking a salary. I'm hiring people. Um, But I called Bernadette and I said, can I come to your studio? And she said, yes. So I stayed the next weekend and and I went to her studio and I said, I have to have this. And um, she said, "Okay, well, it costs this much. And I go, "Okay, um, can I pay it over time? And she said, yes. So I think it took me, you know, three or four years to pay it over time. But that was my reminder every day 
of my business life. It is, don't tread on my dreams. It is, walk softly. And I love that. I still have it. Um, but to your point, I think we all have roots, but we've kind of moved beyond them. And I believe that some of those very integral um, cultural uh historical parts of our lives, they, they come out if you allow them. And, and I'm very proud of my Irish heritage and most off, most proud of the, 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 the resilience and the strength and the, I can overcome anything attitude. And I think that is the epitome of an entrepreneur is like, you can be doubting Thomas, you, you, you don't have to see what I see, but I know in my heart and I know in my mind that this is the right thing to do. And, and this is what's going to be the outcome of that. And, and it will, for me, it was giving back. For me, it was mm -hmm. rather than having a one-on-one -on -one patient relationship it is a one on millions through Medair. And what a, what a privilege that is to be able to touch so many lives and uh, all, from, all from an idea and all from Ralphie, um, that, that little boy is still with me. And that's why I dedicated my book to him because everyone has an event in their life that positive or negative, that provides an opportunity, an opportunity for growth, an opportunity for reflection, an opportunity to, to make an impact. And, and that can be as, as small a circle as your own family. Yeah. Or it can be, um, you know, your community or in this case, the world. And I'm very proud of that. And I'm proud of the people that that believed in me and both from a customer perspective as well as from my family and my close friends who cheered me on. And so um, I am a big supporter of women and, and um, irrespective of what our percentage is in an industry like aviation, I believe that we have an advantage, not a disadvantage. And I believe that if you see a glass ceiling, it will be there. I've never seen it. I wrote, I refuse to recognize that. And, um, and I have achieved everything that I wanted to achieve. Wow, Joan, I, I, gosh, I love everything you're saying. I love how you just said that everyone has an event that happens in their life and that could be turned into an opportunity. I think that is so true. I definitely resonate with that. Um, and you know, that's what entrepreneurship is, is just, if something happens to you that whether it's positive or negative, that's really an opportunity to make something better, different, that will help contribute to society. Um, I, I would love to ask you one more question because I want to be mindful of your time. Um, there's so much innovation that's happening. As we look to the future, how do you see 
uh, innovations like AI impacting the remote medical sector? And are there any entrepreneurial opportunities that you see for women to kind of look, um, look out for? I think that AI, and, and I've, I received a, an incredible award um, from the National Business Aviation Association years ago. And, and, and in, the, in my acceptance, um, and this was six years ago, seven years ago, um, and, I, and I said, who knows what the future holds? It could be AI. And, and so artificial intelligence has a role for sure, because it's, it's collecting all of the, the knowledge from years past going forward. And uh, I think it has to be harnessed in a way that um, mankind still is in control. Uh, I think in my business, the role that AI will have is uh, from a diagnostics perspective. Um, I think about uh, Star Trek and and um, the, uh, the the doctor on Star Trek that's waving the, the wand over the body and knowing exactly where the injuries are. I think the collective um, uh, diagnostic, tools that are out there and then to combine them along with age, sex, um, history, blah, 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 that, you know, you're going to get diagnoses much quicker. And, um, and then the repertoire of, of treatments and, uh, you know, solutions, a path forward in terms of how the best way to treat this particular illness, I think it's a step change um, yeah. in, in healthcare. I think as as we look at, in many ways, the degradation of healthcare, maybe mm. this will actually augment it and help us focus on solutions that um, don't remove the doctor per se, but yet give us more continuity of care and consistent treatment modalities and um, give people an opportunity to leverage um, the research that's out there, uh, and and uh, a better better opportunity to have a quality of life. So I, I do see it as very much a part of the future. It's how it's how it's um, designed. We don't want to replace humans with machines, um, but I think we can utilize that information to be much more. Um, targeted and um, the outcomes I think would, would uh, benefit for sure. Yeah. Joan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Aviate with Shasta podcast. I am just, my, my mind is running uh, with like so much inspiration. I've learned so much from you and I just appreciate everything you've done for the world, for society, for aviation. You truly are an inspiration. And I am just so grateful to have known you and uh, to, to have had this conversation and be able to share it with others. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Shasta. It's a privilege. Thank you. Thank you.